Are you telling me you built a time machine? What about the DeLorean? Hello? Hello? Anybody home? Hey! Think with fly! Finn! Guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. What are you looking at, butthead? It is not Back to the Future Day. First of all, it's the day after Back to the Future Day, and that is because on Back to the Future Day 2019, neither one of us felt very good. And so we decided we'd push it one day close enough. Time circuits moved a day, but we're still going to talk. This one's going to be fun because if there's one thing that Brad Willis and I bonded on, and maybe it was a precursor years in the past to lead to what you're listening to right now on this Pop 6 podcast here on this Tuesday, October the 22nd, 2019 is when it's actually being recorded. It was our shared love of certain things in pop culture. Lost is on that list, which is going to be a cast series down the line when we have the time to really get back into it and, and rewatch it. And Back to the Future was always there to the extent that we both bought the USA Today piece that came out a few years ago. I have multiple books. I brought them in here and shown them to you, Brad. This is kind of... I don't know. We sit around and we quote this film way too much. I've done it since I watched it for the first time in 1985. I am as big a fan of this property as you possibly can be to the extent that on my honeymoon a couple of weeks ago, if I didn't know she was the one before, and I did, and she's listening to this and believe me, I knew, she told me the one thing she wanted to do on the honeymoon was watch Back to the Future. Well, in addition to what you do on a honeymoon, we're not going into that detail, but... <laughs> Generally speaking, she said she wanted to watch it because she hadn't watched it in a while, and there would be times when we needed a break from what we were doing, and so we sat there and watched it one evening, and we got to the end, and she was really tired, so she was kind of almost dozing off, and so I thought she didn't like it. I was like, oh, no, she's not going to be a fan, and then she's like, no, I thought it was amazing when we got to the end of it, and I said, there's a reason for that. It's because that script is perfect. It's because it fits like the best level of Tetris you've ever seen. And I remember talking to her during it and three or four times remarking, I have never noticed that before. And I can't even remember the things that I noticed, so I'll notice them again for the first time the next time I see it. The film is so rich. The series is so rich. And so we're here to talk about Back to the Future in all the detail that it deserves in a, you know an hour and a half or so max. We're not going to go as long as we probably could. We could talk about it all day long, Brad, but I just have such an affinity for... Back to the Future, to the extent that I went and saw The Dream Team, which is a Michael Keaton film uh, about people that have mental illness. And I saw it mainly for Christopher Lloyd being in it because he was Dr. Emmett Brown, right. and that was my guy. Yeah. Him and Marty McFly were my guy, and I like Keaton too, but it was Christopher Lloyd that brought me to that. Anything Christopher Lloyd was associated with, I wanted to see. Taxi, you know, all of that stuff that, that my parents had seen even beforehand. I just cared because I cared so much about Doc Brown and Marty McFly, and I also realized I was a man thanks to Leah Thompson. <laughs> That's when I first was like cognizant of mental things that I had not paid attention to before age seven. Well, first of all, I can't tell you how proud I am to hear that you watched Back to the Future on your honeymoon. That's, I mean, kudos to both of you. In yeah. fact. Um, Back to the Future is so ingrained into my DNA um, it, you know, obviously, at my age, I grew up around Back to the Future. Most anything at that age of my life, if it had a cool car, 
I was in. Mm-hmm. I remember watching uh, Lee Majors and the Fall Guy because he had a cool truck. So Night Rider, Knight which Rider. I watched on Friday nights because of Kit, not because of David Hasselhoff. Remember Hardcastle and McCormick? I remember the name. Yeah. I don't think I watched it. Only reason to watch it, cool car. Dukes of Hazard. Oh, for sure. Cool car. I had the big wheel. I had, back, a, Dukes, I had a General Lee big wheel. Back to the Future fell into that for me at that time in my life at a point where um, I didn't even get the jokes. Didn't care. But I really liked time travel, and I really liked cool cars, mm-hmm. and uh, so it stuck with me. And so, you know, as we sit here, uh, good grief, what now, uh, almost 35 years later. Yeah, it's been a long time. I, I still am enamored with that movie. I still can quote it by heart. There are things about it that um, that I can pick out. And I, I like you... I went for about two years without watching it, mm-hmm. and then I went to see a screening of it at the Bell Court. It was the first time I had seen the original in a theater setting. I saw the original the first time off a of VHS recording off of HBO. I had never seen Back to the Future without the title card at the end that said to be continued. Right. Because the original release just went to black. Right. And by the time it had reached HBO and, uh, and a friend could uh, tape it for me on his VHS... To be continued had been added. And I remember at the time thinking how long it had been, how many times I had watched that movie, and yet there had, there had not been a continuation of it. There had not been a Back to the Future 2. This was the, the late 1980s. There was no Twitter. There was no real way to get online or do anything and find out, like, hey, is this even in the works? And then I remember hearing, I don't remember if I saw it like on Entertainment Tonight or something uh, yeah. after the local news, you know, where they interview Michael J. Fox and they're doing a second and I was just on fire for it all over again. Back to the Future is, uh, you know, like I said, it's just kind of part of who I am. And to be able to dig in a little bit on it and kind of share that passion with, with you guys, it's, it's really cool and I'm looking forward to it. So, this is a story that I've told before, but in 1985... I had a plan to see Back to the Future that I knew my mom probably wasn't going to be cool with. You're like six years because old. Because of the rating. I think I was seven. Okay. Or, well, I was born in October of 78, so six. Six and a half. Six and a half. Yeah. One of my good friends, I guess my best friend at the time, my childhood best friend, he had seen it. His parents had taken him to it, and so he told me about it. I was so, like, over the moon, have to see this. He's talking about nothing but a DeLorean and... He, he was an incredible artist, and still is. He works actually in Blu-rays in Los Angeles now, helping to create them. And he was working, I think, with Industrial Light and Magic for a time as well, which used to be one of the things that where a lot of these films were done. And so he drew the DeLorean for me, and he told me a little bit about it. I was so excited about it, I knew my parents were not going to be down with this. The rating was a little bit much for them. At the time, there's probably going to be a little bit of language here. It was just PG. Yeah. But, you know, at a six-year-old, yeah, you're, you're probably still kind of dealing with G-rated movies for the most part. So on a Sunday morning, I convinced my mom, one, to, I guess, let us skip church unless it happened in the afternoon. I don't remember the exact time, but I remember telling her, hey, I want to see this Disney film, The Black Cauldron. And The Black Cauldron was an animated film. That was the first ever Disney film that was rated PG. First ever animated film that was rated PG. And so when you just hear the name, you think, okay, that's a little bit dark. Sure. And it, and it was, right. as a matter of fact. I had no intention ever of seeing The Black Cauldron. <laughs> but it was a Disney movie. I thought maybe 
And so with a little bit of pushing, I was able to convince her to do that. But what I knew was when we were making this 30-minute drive to the theater, Back to the Future was also on at that theater. Right. And I had seen that in the newspaper. And so my plan was always the same. Get there and tell her, it's the same rating. It's PG just like a Black Cauldron is. Ricky saw it. And her and his parents said it's okay. Language a little bit, but not anything that bad. And so I begged and begged and begged. I started like setting it up halfway before we got there. Then we got to the parking lot and we sat there and I made my case for like 20 minutes. And she gave in. Wow. And so I was able to see Back to the Future in 1985 in place of the Black Cauldron, which to this day and I have never seen. And you didn't have to lie about it. No. Which uh, is nice. I did not. Uh, it Actually, I was just reading this. It was distributed on July 26th, 1985, with a budget of $44 million, the most expensive animated film ever made, earned $21 million, led to a loss, and nearly bankrupted Walt Disney. So maybe a lot of people did what I did. Hey, Mom, take me to see this, <laughs> and then convince them to see Back to the Future. So I will never forget Back to the Future just for the skullduggery that I pulled as a six-and-a-half-year-old <laughs> to get my mom to take me to that. And it was like FX. It was like FX when FX first launched, and they knew they could get away with the S-bombs. Right. And so every five seconds, Michael Chiklis on the shield is dropping an S-bomb, and you're like... We don't need it. Like, I right. get that you can use it, but there's no reason to. So there's a little bit. When I went back and watched it on my honeymoon, I, I had forgotten there was as much language as there was. Well, and and, and that that was the case for a lot of PG 80s films. Right. Oh, yeah. Just like when there, were boob, there were boobs in Airplane. Right. Things like that. There was more acceptable, I think, at the time than there is now, which is kind of stunning considering yeah. what's appropriate and okay now when you get a little further down in the ratings. So that's this when I true. saw Back to the Future. We got out of it. And mom's like, I'm glad I let you see that. Which basically was her way of saying, I really like that also. I have never met someone that I've ever spoken to about Back to the Future that has anything but good things to say about it because it is such a good story on a, new, on a number of levels, Brad. You've got the comedy side. You've got a good action film with some sci-fi in it. And then you got that romance. You've got that thing that can get your parents involved and get you involved as a teenager as you're starting to notice things. And all that. it had absolutely everything. It had something for everybody. Well, and the backstory as to how this film came to be, it, it, I think, is, is, is something that we can all kind of relate to. Bob Gale, who's yes. the lead writer, found uh, an old yearbook of his parents, sees a picture of his dad in high school, and it kind of started the conversation with it himself of, you know, if I had known my dad in high school, would we have been friends? Mm -hmm. And it kind of led to this idea of, you know, if you were to go back in time, you know, what would happen? Um, there, there were a handful of different iterations of the of the the time machine. Uh, there, you know, we'll probably get to this. There were different uh, iterations of actors. Oh, for yeah. this. It, it kind of came a, a long way in a short amount of time because the studio rushed this project. But you're right in that I think it it appeals to a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons, and that's why it's fairly universally beloved. I'm like you. I don't know that I've ever met anybody who just says, no, hate it, can't stand it, would never watch it again. No. You know, you have people who love it, like like us, and who would watch it, you know, weekly. And then you have people that see it, and they say, hey, you know, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good flick, and you know, I'm glad I gave it the time. Yeah. But, it's, but, it, but it does, and it's funny. The older you get, 
it touches you in different ways. No question about it. Yeah. The, the, the jokes land a little bit differently. The sentimentality hits you a little bit differently. And, you know, I think when you're kind of comparing a movie as to, you know, we go back to some things that have been said this week by Francis Ford Coppola and, and uh, um, Martin, Scorsese. Martin Scorsese and, you know, cinema and what, you know, what does cinema mean and what's it all about. That, that's a true that's a true rank of cinema in the sense of does it does it move you years down the line and perhaps different ways and this film does that in, in in lots of in lots of those ways yeah and you talked about and of course i was six and a half and maybe even into my teens i didn't fully understand the scene with george back in 1955 with the earphones on with the walkman being convinced right. to get things going. I didn't even think about the fact that a Walkman didn't even exist. So everything about that would have freaked him completely out. The suit, all like everything sort of weaved its way in and made complete sense. And of course, the Ronald Reagan joke, which it flew over my head even though he was president because when I was six and a half years old, I didn't know how preposterous that would have <laughs> been to suggest to somebody in 1955. They covered every base they made sure that it all made sense. The logic holes were few and far between. I'm sure that you can nitpick and find something. But I've read numerous articles through the years that suggest this is the perfect script or the closest thing to a, to a perfect script as you will ever see. And as many good things as Robert Zemeckis has done throughout his career, I think it's intriguing that obviously he did Forrest Gump. And Forrest Gump, you had this idea that Inadvertently, Forrest Gump created things like the Bleep Happens bumper sticker mm -hmm. and the Smiley Face logo right. and all of those things. Yep. Well, in Back to the Future, Johnny B. Good right. was created by Marty McFly. Yeah. Like, there's other little things that they just throw in that end up popping up in stories that have nothing to do with it years and years later. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you mentioned something a second ago, like jokes that didn't hit the mark, perhaps, when you were younger. It, it didn't cross my mind until probably, you know, I want to say teenage, that how awkward this storyline is with the fact that his mother wants to date him. Yeah. And you don't, and you don't quite, uh, that, that's the joke, not a joke, but that's a, a, a storyline, a, a point that kind of goes over your head when you are enamored by the car and you're enamored by the comedy. Um, and again, you see it later, and you you really kind of understand the, the the pickle that he was in, not just in terms of his existence, but just in terms of being able to live with yourself for the rest of your life, you know? Also, I mean, Biff's basically trying to rape Lorraine. Very much so. Like, I mean, it's not just he's making advances on her. He's sexually assaulting her or yes. about to engage in sexual assault. Six and a half me didn't recognize that. Six no. and a half me recognized his car going into the manure. Right. Like right. that's that was my favorite one of my two three favorite scenes in the film growing up was that whole deal, and yeah, his mom having the hots for him is a little bit, it's intriguing, uh, but I'm glad that I didn't understand it at that point in time. What do you think the odds are someone listening to this podcast right now has never seen Back to the Future and might need uh, a brush up, a recap? Uh, yeah, well, I mean a quick, a, I mean a quick recap is probably instructive for everybody okay fast as we can go let's see it all right yeah sure well he shows up first of all you find out that doc brown has done something that he shouldn't have done and you find out that marty mcfly this 17 year old kid in in, in hill valley california is friends with a 50 something year old scientist yeah which is sort of weird 
a little bit. Sort of weird because you don't know any other friends that Marty McFly has. No, and we the only know, other one you meet is Jennifer. Really, we know that he's in a band. Yes, but we don't get and the heads. idea. We don't get the idea that he's necessarily popular. No, but he's kind of on the fringe. But he seems like he would have been kind of he popular like based on the way he acts. He doesn't seem unpopular, but it goes along with his family being losers. Yes. His dad is a whipped loser. His mom is an alcoholic. Uh, his, his brother, brother his works at McDonald's, basically the equivalent of a fast food restaurant. If you see the outfit that he's wearing. His sister is just, just a mess. Yeah, total mess. And his uncle's in is jail. Is in jail. Is in prison. Yeah. So yeah. So he's he has not had it particularly well. But he seems like he's sort of okay, except that it's like he's still viewed by other people in town as the offspring of people that don't have respect in Hill Valley. His only passion is music. Yes. And his band tries out for the uh, for the the, prom, for the dance, if you yeah. will, and they're denied. Yeah, by Huey Lewis. Which is really funny. Which I did not know for a long, 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 long time. While he's playing a Huey Lewis song, yes. Huey Lewis in his character stands up and tells him they're too darn loud. But yeah, so he's hanging out with the 54-year-old guy or whatever, but he's he shows up at his house and you realize Doc Brown's not there. Why is Doc Brown not there? Well, because Doc Brown has invented a time machine, and he's been trying to perfect all this stuff, and he is a failed scientist. That's the other thing to keep in mind. He's a crackpot. He's never that's how he's viewed by everybody. He's never done anything that's ever worked Nothing's before. Nothing's ever worked. Yeah. And he wants him to meet him in a parking lot at a mall at one fifteen in the morning. Yeah. Which immediately, if you're a parent, screams, why is my 17-year-old son meeting a 55-year-old man in a parking lot at a mall at one fifteen? But in the you morning? Can, but you can actually extrapolate and go behind that. There were times when people didn't lock their front doors at night when they went to sleep. I'm in the house for five minutes, and I bolt my door. <laughs> I still don't think even in 1985 I'm letting my 17-year-old kid hang out with a 55-year-old Well, but he scientist. didn't ask. He snuck out of the house. That's a valid point. Yeah. And so the time machine is a thing that exists, and, and it's a DeLorean. Is, he's enamored with the time machine because it's four wheels that will work. Yes. He's supposed to be using his dad's car to go to the lake with his girlfriend. Right, 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 right. It gets wrecked by Biff, who we haven't mentioned yet. Who's had an accident. Biff's a total a-hole. Yeah, total a-hole. Okay. And, and he's an a-hole in the past, too. He's an a-hole in the past. He's his dad's boss. Yes. And there's nothing likable about Biff. Right. So, basically, to get the time machine to work... Plutonium is required. And plutonium's not really accessible in 1985. Isn't really accessible in 2019 either. Unless you're going through terrorists. Right. And, and so he does, and he screws them over by telling them he's building something for them, but instead does not, jacks the plutonium, and the obvious happens. Always a bad idea. Yeah. So the time machine sends his dog back in time, or forward in time, one minute. One minute. And then he shows up, so it's like, okay, this thing works. And that's where we establish the rules of time travel for this movie. Right. Because time travel in this movie is instantaneous. Right. When you travel through time, you don't travel through space. You're in the exact same place that you are, whether you go back 100 years, forward 100 years, or forward one minute. Right. And You're not, you don't end up in London. And that's established right away, and... Uh, there's a little bit, it's the thing about this movie that I think is so well done. There's a lot of exposition that's entertaining. Yeah. But you have to explain the rules of time travel because you can make them pretty much whatever you want. Right. Well, he stole the plutonium from Libyans. Libya at the time was, it was Gaddafi and it was, it was sort of the menace at that point in time. That, Libya is the one the I was day. afraid of when I was six and a half. That's what I was learning about in school or starting to learn about a little bit. So they show up to kill Doc Brown because Doc Brown has stolen things that they were presumably going to use to blow up the world, yes. basically. And to escape, after Doc Brown gets shot, 
Marty jumps into the car. He jumps into a car that only has one pellet of plutonium in it. Yes. Which at this point... Because they had taken out the entire... They had, had all these canisters of it. Yes. And he was going to put it back in, but he never got it into the car before, because the, the VW bus showed up. Right. And you can't travel through time without plutonium. So he lays out... Doc Brown lays out one pellet, one trip. How do I ever expect to get back? Yeah. Well, Marty McFly... It's yeah. 88 miles per hour in a mall parking lot. That's the key. 88 miles per hour sends you through the through all the stuff that's going on inside that car back in time. At, uh, so at Twin Pines Mall, he goes back in time without a clear way of getting back. And, of course, there's no mall in 1955, which well, is what happens to be there. And then if you remember, the reason why it's actually on the time circuits is because Doc Brown puts it up there and then remembers, oh, yeah. That was actually when I created this idea in right. the first place, when I fell off my toilet seat and came up with the flux capacitor. So he shows back up in Hill Valley 30 years prior when there's no mall and even his own development where he lives, Lion Estates, doesn't even exist. Well, the great joke that's set up before he goes back in time is when Doc Brown tells him that the area that they're on used to be farmland as far yes. as the eye could see that old man Peabody owned. Yes. And the mall is Twin Pines Mall. Right. And when he goes back in time, he actually runs over one of his pines. Yes, yeah, so there's only one pine then, and of course it is Peabody who tries to shoot him because he thinks he's some kind of an alien from another planet, which of course he does because here's this ridiculous looking car and a dude in this yellow hazmat suit. And he's already mutated into human form. Absolutely. And so now he's in 1955, and he has basically the short version is he doesn't want to be there. He, he wants does. to get back home. And he knows there's one person he can call. It's Doc Brown. Yeah, Doc Brown 30 years ago. But the problem with Doc Brown 30 years ago is Doc Brown's never created anything that works. No. Has no idea who Marty McFly is. No. And is yet to invent time travel. Right. Except that that day he fell off his toilet while hanging a clock because the porcelain was wet. He slipped and hit his head on the edge of the sink. And when he came to, he had an, a vision, a revelation. The flux capacitor. That's what makes time travel possible. Which I always thought as a kid was the flux capacitor. Really? I had no idea it was capacitor. I actually have one in my office. Oh, yeah. I a think you've shown that to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he has to find a way to get home, and in the process, he screws what was supposed to happen in the past up by getting hit by a car that his own father was supposed to be hit by to set up meeting what would become his mother. Well, and very early on in 1985, when we're learning about these characters, we found out that his father met his mother because he was hit by a car. Yes. Because he was bird watching. Yes. Turns out he was a peeping Tom. He was a peeping Tom, but Marty throws him out of the way of the car, not even thinking about it. Then he gets hit by the car. He ends up put into the bedroom, and, well, he's Michael J. Fox in 1985. Michael J. Fox, by the way, to he, back up. Family the, Ties started in 1982. He was he was about as he's the biggest hot, thing. red hot as you could have been as an actor at that point. His film career started, I think, in 1980. Family Ties was off the charts, and they tried to make him an antagonist. This is hilarious. Because this is how television works. Liberals in television that have controlled fictional television forever tried to create an Alex P. Keaton that people were not going to like because he was going to be a Republican, a Reagan fan, and instead everybody loved that character. He's impossible to not like. Yes. And so, of course, he gets red hot and he's doing other films, but Back to the Future is the one where... They nailed it with the casting, and that led him to the secret of my success and all of the things that would come afterwards. So we should back up a touch, because Michael J. Fox was almost never in this movie. Correct. Michael J. Fox was actually told by the Family Ties people that he could not do Back to the Future right. because it conflicted with their filming. Right. 
So originally, Eric Stoltz yes. was cast as Marty McFly. Yes. And he totally missed the mark in terms of comedy. In fact, Michael J. Fox, when shooting Teen Wolf, was on the same street as the group shooting Back to the Future and made the comment to himself, I really wish I could be a part of a movie like that. Which yeah. tells you. Although I love Teen Wolf. The I, original Teen Wolf is another one that I, I watched way more than I probably otherwise would have because Michael J. Fox from Back to the Future was in it, right. and then I got into it a little bit. So Eric Stoltz ends up getting let go six weeks into shooting. And they go and beg and plead with the people from Family Ties, and Family Ties says to Robert Zemeckis, if you, if, if, so long as it doesn't interfere with what we're doing, you can have him. And they went to Michael J. Fox, and they said, yeah, we kept you from getting this role before, but we're going to let you have it, but it can't interfere with Family Ties, not one bit. So he shot Family Ties during the day, and Back to the Future at night, and I guess now we're caught up as to why he's in the movie yeah. Where are we caught up to? He's well, actually interfered with his parents being... Mad. He's interfered because he has taken the role of his father. And that means he wouldn't exist. That's the key problem. here. He yeah. nor his, his brother or sister would exist because there would be no you know, intercourse to make them, yeah, basically. Well, I mean, yeah, and it's, and it's most basic, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got to not only now get to 1985, but before he does it, he has to erase the mistake that he made by taking his father's place. So he has to find a way to get his very uncool, lame father in a situation where this woman, this girl who kind of seems semi-popular yeah. at that point in time, would somehow care about him, which seems an astronomically difficult task to pull off when you see these people. Maybe even more of an astronomical feat than trying to figure out how to get 1.21 gigawatts of electricity into a flux capacitor, right. which they also have to figure out, because if he just leaves, his parents have not yet met each other, and he basically fan vanishes from existence. Yeah. Of course, we resolve that as the movie wears right. on. Right. 1.21 gigawatts... You can find that back in the day, one way you can do that is through lightning, and a bolt of lightning, out. and a flyer that you'd seen him get earlier in the film that he still just happened to have in his pocket because it had Jennifer's phone number on it. Five 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 four eight two three. Correct, Jennifer. It's my father. I'll call you tonight. Yeah, yeah. I'll be at my grandma's. So he's got it, but that flyer has been brought to him by this woman that's trying to preserve this yes. famous clock tower. He donated a quarter that had taken a lightning strike. That it destroyed it, and I can't believe it took them 30 years to try and fix it, but luckily it did, because that flyer gives them the information that, oh, well, there's going to be a bolt of lightning. We know exactly when it's going to hit, and if we can time this outright, then we can send that energy, that electricity through the car and send you back to 1985. That's brilliant. It is, and, and so... The, the story at that point pivots from Doc Brown doing the Doc Brown things that he has to do to figure out a way to get lightning into the flux capacitor and pivots to Marty McFly trying to get his parents in basically in love with each other. And Doc Brown sees George and how he can't operate and at one point says, maybe you were adopted. Like, how in the <laughs> world did these people ever have sex in the first place well it turns out that they they kissed for the first time on the dance floor at the enchantment under the sea dance right which, which is coming up that Saturday yeah night. and lorraine which is the mother's name tries to get calvin klein to go with her yeah because it's written all over his underwear right yeah. so that's marty and so marty actually agrees to it because he figures okay i can weave this and i can be somebody that takes advantage of her because I'm going to be gone anyway in the future. Right. So I can be this dastardly villain and I can create a hero out of my father 
even if he could never pull this off on his own, all you got to do is punch me out, and we're good to go, and she'll fall for you. But the person that has yet to be brought up in the past, except for the fact that we referenced he's a huge a-hole, is that Biff Tannen is still around, and Biff has kind of a thing for Lorraine. Yeah, Biff's got a thing for Lorraine, and Biff's a bully. He's a classic 1950s bully with the rolled-up sleeves, but he's tall, and he's bigger than most of the people there, and he's got a posse of losers, one of which that wears, like, 3D glasses. That, that's the only one of the guys that you ever remember. His name is, is 3D. Yes, his name is indeed 3D. Billy Zane was uh, one of his, that's his, right. his minions. That's right. You just don't really pay attention to it. because it's in. Exactly. So Biff is trying to get with Lorraine... And Lorraine's rebuffing that, and it's made worse for Biff by Marty existing because she's totally enamored with him and calling him a dreamboat every five seconds. So, you see the the quandary, if you will. There's a lot of quandary here. (laughs) So, Marty then has to evade Biff because he crosses him a couple of different times, wants to save George's reputation in a malt shop, but also because he's a great skateboarder, he's able to lead to that manure thing that i mentioned a little while ago and for all intents and purposes created skateboarding yeah and it was very illegal what he was doing when he tags onto the back of cars Always i remember watching oh, so did i and that's when the power of love hit that's for right. me in 1985 i mean that's when that became you know one of my all-time favorite songs but he gets the better of biff because marty mcfly is actually cool and you kind of see okay this this guy would have been popular but for his parents Yes. But he's still got to find a way. So they get to the dance, and at the same time, they figured out how they can do this deal, sending the car back to 1985. Or at least in theory. Yes. I'm, right. Very because much in theory. It, because it's Sorry that loose. this model is not to scale is one of my favorite <laughs> lines in the whole film. It's like, to scale? You're sad you didn't build a clock tower? Man's nuts. Uh, and he's still at the same high school, and he's still got the same principal. And now he's in the car with his mom right getting ready to put the moves on her. and he sees her smoking and he sees her drinking and he sees these things he thinks his mom was born a nun and so he's reacting to that and he's coming across now as a prude he's coming across as a moralistic square. a square that's exactly the right word for it but unfortunately this car got destroyed during the skateboard episode outside the malt shop and biff needs retaliation for his car couple hundred bucks damage to it and so he shows up when marty's expecting george McFly. he thinks it's george and he turns around you cause you know x amount of damage to my car now i'm going to take it out of your ass that's right and marty gets dealt with gets thrown in the gets trunk thrown the, the trunk of a car the band at this enchantment under the sea dance is pretty talented like yes. if you hear them i'm like i wish i could have had that at my prom and we had that at my dance <laughs> But then George is George understands the plan. And weirdly enough, George goes along with all of this. Like, he doesn't really even question it, and he mainly trusts. because the Walkman and... Darth Vader. Right. Darth Vader, which is something that I still don't didn't fully grasp until a few years ago, and now it all makes total sense of how they set all that up. Well, there was a little bit of a story that George liked to write science fiction yes. novels. Yes. And so Marty basically took every piece of science fiction that he was aware of from a pop culture standpoint, put on his uh, his Devo suit, as he called it, with a radiation suit, and spoke to him through a set of headphones and told him his name was Darth Vader, who was an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan. Mm-hmm. And then if he didn't take Lorraine to the dance, that he'd melt his brain. So it was enough, and George bought into it. And, of course, George was already a peeping Tom that I'm sure wanted a, someone like Leah Thompson at that point in time. So it wasn't a hard sell, no. other than he probably didn't think he could make it happen. 
Not like I, I imagine George had no confidence to do that, even Zero. when he's like, "Hey, Lou, milk, chocolate." chocolate. <laughs> so George rolls up to the car on schedule to knock out Marty, who's going to play along. And instead of Marty, it's the bully of all bullies in the world, Biff Tannen. And basically, Biff gives him an opportunity to leave. Biff's like, just forget you saw this and roll, basically. Well, George doesn't do that. George actually, in this moment, realizes that she actually needs to be saved. And this peeping Tom loser gains a spine. And his heart overwhelms maybe his brain at that point in time. And then even though he has the uncle move put on him, basically, by Biff and has his arm put behind his back and she's screaming, you're going to break his arm, you see his, you see this moment where his face changes. And by him, I mean Crispin Glover, yeah. the actor playing George McFly, where he goes from, like, pain and this, like, ah, oh, ah, oh, which is exactly how he laughs in 1985 and just this total buffoon and weirdness to this determined look of this dude's going down. And he throws one punch and Biff's out. And it was it was when he shoved Lorraine. Yes. Biff shoved Lorraine to the ground. Right. You could see the moment where it changed. And what's amazing about it is these two characters didn't know anything, but it felt or didn't know anything really about one another, meaning Lorraine and George. But George reacted like, "I love her." For some reason, I'm supposed to be here in this moment. And so he he lays Biff out. He he grabs Lorraine out of the car, asks her if she's okay. He does the whole. Like damsel in distress hero thing that we've heard about our whole lives. He does still think perhaps that he might have his brain melted if he doesn't take her to the dance. Yeah. You know, like there is the motivation. He doesn't want Darth Vader from Planet Vulcan to melt his brain. Right. But, so they go to the dance. But but there's no music now. There's no music because Marty McFly is in the back of this car that happens to be the band's car and he's knocking on it during their break while they're Smoking a little bit. Where are the keys? Uh, the keys are in the trunk. Say that again. The keys are in here! <laughs> and so they use a little pocket knife to try and open it. Yes. And it cuts the hand of Marvin Berry. That's right. And, he can't play guitar. And without him, there is no show. And if there's no dance, there's not going to be any dancing, and there's certainly not going to be a kiss between Lorraine and George at which point all of this fails and he goes back to night he can't go back to 1985 because he won't exist when he gets there because there's a photo that we see a couple of different times which I did not fully understand for a long time growing up where slowly but surely pieces of these people were disappearing out of this photo and that was to represent uh, their very existence is being threatened right now because it looks like mom and dad aren't ever going to have children because they're never going to be together in the first place. And if there's no music, they can't dance. If they can't dance, they can't kiss. If they can't kiss, they don't fall in love, and I'm history. So there's one thing that we knew about Marty McFly from the very beginning of this movie. He plays guitar, and he's in a band. So, if, if, uh, unless you know somebody that can play guitar. <laughs> and so Marty McFly joins quit, Marvin Berry's... Marvin Berry's the band, the Starlighters. And so they play Earth Angel first, and he's fading during this. Literally. Because he's disappearing out of the photo. Everybody's disappearing out of the photo, and at the moment he starts to fade, somebody cuts in on the rain and tries to dance. This redheaded nobody yeah. steps in, and George shoves. That's a, that's a great moment in the movie. He's like, excuse me, and he just shoves him down, and then you hear the first like really great note. Yeah. From Marty as he stands back up 
and you realize in that moment, okay, everything's going to be good here, and he kisses her, and then the picture appears, and then Marty's rolling yeah. at this point. He now, feels good. And now, Johnny be good. Yes, yes. He gets, to, he gets to play his song, basically. He never got to play the dance in his own time, Yeah, but he got to play it there in 1955. Right. Even if you guys aren't quite ready for that yet. Right, so he does Johnny be good, and he does it perfectly, and Marvin Berry, who's not playing, calls his brother. <laughs> Who, cousin. Cousin, yeah. Cousin Chuck Berry. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of him. And he says, you know, if you've been looking for a new sound, which I know you have, why don't you check this out? And he holds the phone out, and it's Johnny B. Good. And so right there, what you're supposed to take from that is Marty McFly created Johnny B. Good for Chuck Berry at the Enchantment Under the Sea Dance in 1955 by happenstance basically right. by accident right but it's just another one of these nice little easter egg things that you that you have in the background so george and lorraine are now together they have a nice little moment where they run into marty at the end and marty says i have a feeling about you too and then he remembers he had set fire to the living room rug as a kid he said hey be easy on that kid if that actually happens which is a weird thing yes for him to say but they're like okay whatever and now he's got to get to the spot because we're getting close to the moment where the lightning strike's going to happen, it's going to be all for naught if he can't do this. So one thing I always thought about is after he leaves, Lorraine says, Marty, what a great name. And I thought that's the only plot hole in the movie because they don't name their firstborn son Marty. Yeah. They waited until their third child to name him Marty. Maybe the first kid had like a family name or something. Yeah, maybe so. So he gets back to the car. And at the same time, he also realizes that his best friend, basically this old man, dies in 1985 he realizes that but doc brown being the side and this sci-fi story you can't tell us about the future you can't tell me about the future because it could affect everything that leads up to it me trying to stop it from happening and all of those things marty writes him a letter basically saying you're going to get shot in 1985 the night that i go back take precautions so that this does not happen but, of course, Doc finds it, tears it up in front of him in the rain, and so there's no way to tell him. And then there are other issues in terms of the storm is causing problems with the setup, which leads to Doc having to climb the actual clock tower. And Marty has to bounce. And Marty has to roll. Because he is short on time. Yeah, and so he runs to the car, jumps in the car, and the car doesn't turn on. It seemed like an ongoing thing yeah. with, with uh, the DeLorean. Yes. Always having issues with the starter. Yes. So he finally bumps his head into it, and it cranks up, and he takes off. Even as he's close, and it's weird because I'm trying to figure out how far back he actually was. Because he saw Doc, and then we still get several seconds to add to the, I don't know, I guess to just add to the suspense sure. of the entire moment. Yep. He's also decided, I'll go back 10, 15 minutes early. And that'll be enough time to warn him in 1985, hey, I've seen this movie. You need to get out of here. He, he actually says 10 minutes ought to do it, yeah. and then he puts in 11 minutes, which yeah. I always thought was odd. Yeah, first off, 10 minutes is cutting it close. I mean, really, right? I mean, why don't we go back half hour? Just, just give us a little bit more time. run into traffic? Yeah, huh? in case something goes wrong, maybe more than 10 minutes. Well, the car's moving. Doc gets it set just at the last second, just as he's coming through. Gets electrocuted, basically holding these two pieces of metal, these two pieces of wire together on the ground where a tree had fallen on him. And oh, there's wind. I mean, it's one of the worst storms you'll ever see, basically. It's one that nearly destroyed this this whole area, really, with the taking out the clock tower and all of that. And Marty goes back to 1985. And not only does he go back to 1985... 
He goes back to 1985, where his father and mother are nowhere near the people that they were when he left. But he doesn't quite figure that out to the next morning. He does not, because he goes home and he falls down on his bed, and it's similar to the way we've seen him sleep before. Right. And he gets and he wakes up to back in time by Huey Lewis in the news. But first things first, he's got to go to the mall. Yes. And now, now not only is it not called Twin Pines Mall, yeah. it's Lone Pine Mall, thanks yeah. to his doing in 1955. Right. But Doc Brown still gets shot by the terrorists. Yes, and so he's really sad about that, and he rolls down the hill as he's as he sees it all going down. He sees it, he sees it all, which is amazing to watch because you're seeing the other Marty and this Marty. And in '85, I was blown away. It was a nice little prelude to Part Two, which yes. we'll talk about later. Yes, and so he sees Doc Brown get killed, and he realizes, well, I tried, but I, this is this is awful. And so he goes, and of course, Marty goes back to 1955. The other Marty, right. the one that he's watching in this new 1985, goes back in time, and then he goes to check on his friend. And his friend's not moving, and there's bullet holes riddled through his white hazmat suit, and so he sits there and cries. But he sits and cries where you can't, where he couldn't see Doc Brown's face anymore. Like he's to his, he's laying down next to him, and Marty's sitting up, if you can picture that, if you recall it, which enables Christopher Lloyd to sit up next to him without him knowing and then marty kind of senses it and turns around and then you find out and i don't know how this was even remotely possible to have happened that he took that letter that was torn up and somehow taped it all together enough to know what marty was saying and then he reveals he had a bulletproof vest on well when he ripped up the letter he didn't throw it in the trash no, or in the air he put it in his jacket he pocket. put it in his jacket pocket but not one piece of that disappeared Ah, maybe it's fine. It's a perfect script. It's a lot of tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he does realize, he says, you know, I figured what the hell. Yeah. You know, nobody should know too much about their own future, but eh, right. let's see. Right. So Doc Brown's still alive. Takes one, him home. One thing that I think is intriguing about this, and I, I've never even thought about this until just now, this dude's a failure as a scientist yeah. until 1985. Yep. Except that now he knows that 30 years before, Something happened. So I wonder if that changed the next 30 years of what he invented. Because you never really see any of that other stuff. But you would think maybe he wouldn't have failed well, the one thing, at everything else. The one thing that we do know as the series wears on is he's a failed scientist no longer. Now he has lots of ideas. He has lots of innovations. Right. And, he's, and he's very, very smart. So perhaps he spent those 30 years kind of growing in the knowledge. That growing in point, confidence and growing in wisdom and all of those things. Absolutely. Okay. But, but he takes Marty home. Right. Takes Marty home. Tells him that he wants to go roughly 30 years into the future. Right. And so he takes off and there's like, I always thought there was really good chemistry between Lloyd and Fox. Fantastic. Just like a, and it's not an, look, I know it's a, it's an old man and a teenager, but it's really a father son. Very much so. And I think you start to realize that the reason Marty McFly was close with this crackpot scientist is that this crackpot scientist showed him something his father couldn't in mm. some ways. Or maybe he was a grandfather, even. But he was somebody that actually... George McFly, you can't look at George in the original 1985 and want much to do with him. You're not inspired by that guy. Not at all. But now we're in a new 1985. And this is the part that flew over my head for years and years as to why all of a sudden his dad's super cool... And why, you know, they're coming back from playing tennis and he's tapping her on the rear and <laughs> he's got a book out and all of this. And the reason why is because he punched out the bully and in that moment became a completely different 
human being, as did everybody else in his family. The bully's now in the driveway waxing his BMW. Yeah. Second coat. Second, two coats of wax, <laughs> not just one. Yeah. And so he's got a, he's an author. He's got a book out that is inspired by the character that he ran into years in past. The house is much nicer. Yeah. Inside. And the furniture is nicer. The, the finishes are nicer. Everything about it is nicer. His brother, not a drunk. His mother is not a drunk. His brother is an executive. He's like a stock analyst or something like that. He can't keep up with how many boyfriends his sister his has. His sister's banging in terms of all that's going on in her life. And Marty's just, I mean, Marty's Marty. But Marty now has the truck that he wanted that he never thought he'd, his fantasy truck. And he and Jennifer are together. And you find out that the parents or her, his mother didn't like relationships at all. And it's mainly because of what happened, how she met George and how there was no love in that. And, you know, all of those things. This is totally different. Now that she thinks love is responsible for so much and she's a totally different person, she loves Jennifer. She loves Completely. the fact that Marty's got all of this and all of this. And you just kind of see this whole thing go full circle from not only did he go back in time, he did change his, he did change his future. He did save his friend's life. But he also improved his own quality of life and for generations to come in insurmountably huge ways. Goes outside. Yep. Finds a brand new Toyota pickup truck that yep. he had kind of been pining over. Yep, the Toyota. His girlfriend's there. Yep. How about a ride, mister? Yep. And life's pretty good. Life is not bad. And then the DeLorean shows up. And Doc Brown is back. Doc Brown is back, looking ridiculous. Wearing two ties. Wearing two ties and a yellow <laughs> outfit and all this kind of stuff. Yep. And he's not using plutonium anymore. There's a Mr. Fusion now attached to the DeLorean. Yes, a fusion generator on the back of a car. That That was a joke that was lost on me. And he He's says we got a nuclear yeah. fusion with, with yes. Mister Fusion. Yes, <laughs> and then he basically says we've got to go back. And he thinks, what? Back to the past? Like back to 1955? That's what Marty suggests. And right. He's like, no, back to the future, because something's happened later on in Marty's family, actually with your kids, that's meaning right. Marty and Jennifer's kids, which is the first time Jennifer finds out anything, that's, and she still doesn't know much of what's going on. Certainly, right. But in this moment, you kind of find out, oh, they're going to end up married. In this little slice of Americana, they're going to end up hitched. And, and they're going to end up with a family. And something's gone wrong with his children. Something's got to be done about your kids. Right. And so they jump in the deal. Marty says, we don't have enough road to get to 88. And then you find out the DeLorean now flies. And it spins. And it comes directly at the screen. And it goes boom, boom, boom right into the screen. And then it goes black. And that's the end of the film. And to this day is one of the top five most badass endings it's awesome. in all of Because it immediately goes to that back in time again, and it's just absolutely fantastic. So that's the first film. Soundtrack was really good. Huey Lewis I loved it, man. All the way through. Yeah, Huey Lewis had a lot on there. Eric Clapton had a tune on there. Um, Lindsey Buckingham. And, of course, there's some of the score itself Yeah, that's phenomenal. utterly tremendous. Yeah, Lindsey Buckingham, another one. So that's, that's us kind of going through it in long form, really. But... It's just, I don't know what negative there is to say about that film. There's a good, happy ending to it with a cliffhanger that had they never released another film, it would have been fine. It was, it was actually written to be a joke. Yeah. 
There was never, at the point of producing this movie, there was no intention of a sequel. It was not written to set up a sequel. It was written as a joke. In fact, the writers went back later and said, if we intended to have a sequel, we never would have put Jennifer in the car. Because Jennifer just created writing problems for us. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, that to me, it, it, it was set up perfectly to have a sequel, and yet... It was almost by dumb luck. It was just a great joke that landed that they thought, well, let's just take off from this point and see where it goes. Well, it made some money. The uh, yeah, that Back to the Future film made some money. And it certainly was, a, was the thing that sent Michael J. Fox even further into the stratosphere. And I think you're right in that. When I, I remember when I first watched The Matrix, which is another one of my all-time favorite films, like mm. top five. Yeah. That film probably proved it did not ever need anything more than that first film. Right. The way that that first film ended, yeah, you could go into that world more, but it also was just suggesting the jig is up, agents. We've got this yeah. at this point in time. There's an ending there, and they kept on doing it. And I, even though I liked it more than some people, it wasn't necessary. I don't think two and three were necessary in the Back to the Future series either, but I'm glad they exist because I enjoyed both of them. You asked me last week which one was uh, was my worst favorite. Most people are going to say two. Uh, well, a lot know, of people did not like people. two. I know a lot of people that do. When I went back to twenty, when I went back in 2015 and went on Back to the Future Day to the marathon at the Belcour where the DeLorean was outside and news crews were everywhere and sat there and watched all those three movies. And I remember going to see Back to the Future, I guess it would have been two, at a midnight showing in Martinsville, Virginia, where I was born, and my dad falling asleep in that movie. And falling asleep in Ghostbusters 2 as well. My dad fell asleep in Batman in 1989. 89 Batman was one of the longest lines I've ever stood in for a movie, ever in my life. And we sat in the front row on the very left corner, because it's all we could get, and it yeah. was somebody's birthday. And I will never forget anything about that experience. But I think that three is the weakest film. If that, if for only, I'd rather be in the future and going through all of that than I would be in the Wild West for as long as we were in the Wild West. Because yeah. it's just not my setting. It's just not. The future, the great thing about part two, which we'll dive into detail more on the next episode. Yeah, we're, we're going to extend this. Is that... It was, you know, too many times you watch movies and they're about the future, like Blade Runner, and it's this dark, dystopian future. Back to the Future gave kind of a bright, clean, cheery future with a lot of technological innovations that you could kind of get behind. In fact, some things that they made kind of a deal out of in Back to the Future Part 2 are actual pieces of technology that we use Like today. televisions and phones yeah, and some of those things. Flat TVs on yes. the wall. But, you know, we still don't have hoverboards. And if you call a thing with wheels on it a hoverboard, so help me. If it's may, not off the ground. You might be staring at the business end of a hissy fit. Uh, right. And we still don't have flying cars, which I really hoped in, you know. I think in 1985, that didn't seem completely far-fetched. Flying cars? Yeah. It didn't to me. I mean, everything that we saw that showed the future would show for would show flying cars. Yeah. And now, when you see the future... You're still seeing flying cars. Well, it's like someone said to me not long ago, I guess it was like October, it was about four years ago today, October 22nd, 
2015. They said, you want to know something that's going to trip your brain out? I said, sure. They said, all right, all three Back to the Future movies now happened in the past. <laughs> oh, like, wow. Wow, that tripped me out. Wow. Every one of them. So what's your favorite scene in the original film? Um, mine, I, I think mine just came to me, and I thought it, it was actually pretty easy. I, I think it's, it's the scene where he's racing to the clock tower, and just the way that the score builds, the way that the, you know, the struggle between you know, Doc Brown being able to restring the wire that's fallen because of the storm, Marty having the issue with the car. There are so many things in the way of that happening. Because now you've seen him put his parents together, and you realize that it could be all for naught if he can't. Be, I mean, you're going to have to wait around 30 years for plutonium if you don't catch this lightning bolt at the clock tower at 10.04 p.m. Right. So just the build to that. I will sometimes put the movie on because I have it in iTunes or whatever. Yeah, right. And I'll just fast forward to that part and watch 10 minutes of it and be done. Yeah. I, I, I think that's on the list. Mine's probably when he goes back in time the first time. Yeah. That whole deal with the Libyans and meeting Doc Brown and finding out about this stuff and seeing Einstein. That, and it's got the, you telling me that you made a time machine <laughs> out of a DeLorean. And just right. all of the all the stuff that you hear during that point. No, 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 no. This sucker's electrical. electrical. Yeah. And all of that stuff. But and then, of course, you see that video pop up later. And that's like this... And the other thing I like is the 1955 Doc Brown realizing he was not going to be a failure forever. Yes. That he had done something important. And there's this emotional moment right before Marty goes back where he's like basically telling him, you've changed my life. He's a misfit just as much as Marty McFly. Yes. They needed each other. Yes. And the thing was, you know, I don't know that maybe either one of them realized how much they needed the other because they were misfits. Yeah, I think the only the only part where you really see just how close they are is that Marty wrote that letter. Yeah. And when you see him actually writing it out and you hear Michael J. Fox narrating what he's written when he's sitting in that you know, diner, basically, you're just like, all right, there's a legitimate level of respect and, and love between these two people. How many times have you seen a DeLorean in person? Less Less than five, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You don't see them in the wild a lot. I had a, I wasn't a model car guy or anything like that, but there was a model DeLorean that was weighty and had some metal attached to it, and I I got that toy. I can't remember. I assume it was probably a Christmas gift from, from my parents, but I had it forever, and I remember the door came off it at one point, and I was sad, <laughs> really, really sad because yeah. of all the toys, that DeLorean meant more to me and i always thought in my head i'll get one of those one day mm -hmm. there were two cars that i wanted a delorean and a honda accord because honda accord was the car that my parents had when i was growing up it's the car that i was brought home from the hospital in so it's always like people talk about how they want you know lincoln navigators and all this i always wanted a honda accord and i finally got one and it wrecked my back but i enjoyed it <laughs> and i enjoyed the car nonetheless <laughs> but it was silver and i would always look at it and i would think of here's a mix between the red Honda Accord and the silver DeLorean from the greatest... Like I said, I have a 1A and 1B when it comes to favorite movies. Yeah, Dark Knight's 1A and Back to the Future is 1B. Yeah, And they're vastly different from one another. But if you put me on an island and said you can watch one movie for the rest of your life, you can watch as many times as you want, but there will never be no blockbuster videos popping up out here. Right. You don't have anything else. What would you take? 
it might be Back to the Future. Mine would Honestly, be, yeah. I think it would be. I don't have an A or B. I just have a one. It's Back to the Future, and there are no second place. I mean, there's no, there's nothing that would even come close to challenging that. Now, there's probably two A, two B, two C, two oh, sure. D, but uh, no, there one, one is firmly held in in my mind by Back to the Future. I had right as I graduated high school. At a Honda Civic Del Sol, mm-hmm. which was a two-seater, mm-hmm. and I actually bought off of like bttf.com the license plate that said "Out of Time," and I put it on the front. Of <laughs> Such a loser! I and now it, they sell those in Florida, at Universal Studios, and I had it on the front of my Del Sol, which was a two-seater, much like a DeLorean was, and it didn't have gold wing doors, but it did have a target top that you could take off and put in the trunk, and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's just it's timeless, which is why I like that Robert Zemeckis is still saying I'll fight anybody that tries to remake this thing. I'll fight the the companies to try and get this. And Bob Gale saying that he does not want any installment of this that does not have Marty McFly, doesn't have the characters that we've come to know and love. This isn't you know, like they want to remake everything. It's going to get remade. I know, and it's, it's gonna something happen. that's going to make me sick. Even if it's good, it's going to make me sick. There's well, things that just don't need to be done again. So for a long time, I thought that if anybody touched Bank to the Future, it would be uh, sacrilege mm-hmm. to me. I just wouldn't, wouldn't uh, even consider it. I've gotten to the point where, though, I've started thinking about how much technology has changed. And... Um, the way that you could potentially tell a similar story, but tell it through the prism of someone who's living in the you know the mid two thousands, right? And I'm a little more open to it, so long as they don't try to do a carbon copy of this movie, and as long as it's not like Justin Bieber or something like that. You know who I think I may have said this to you one time. Do you know who I think would make a really good Marty McFly? You may have told me this. Tom Holland. Yeah. When okay. I watch yeah, Tom Yeah, could you Holland, say he sounds like Marty? He, he sounds like Michael J. Fox, has, the younger Michael J. Fox. He has very much a Michael J. Fox quality to him. Tom Holland, if you're not familiar with, you know, it's Peter Parker from the new Spider-Man series. And I think he's, you know, really fun to watch. And he, he, he does comedy well. He does, you know, he's a great actor. Right. Uh, I could see that. I'm not signing up for it, necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm getting to the point now where I think I would almost view it as... An homage as opposed to a ripoff. Yeah. It's just, it's tough. I would watch it, but I would watch it so critically, I'm afraid. Oh, of course. Like, I would try to just murder it. It would never stand up. Oh, no, no, no. No. I mean, you know, because all you would do is compare it. I also believe that there are films that you could release every five years without updating and that people would still come and see. And this is one of those films. Mm-hmm. There are a lot that, look, that 90, I've always thought about this. When you remember the music that you listened to in high school and college, and what, if you're younger right now listening to this, then it might be the stuff that's out now, the Taylor Swift and all that. What, I would even think about it at the time. I would think about it in the mid-90s. I'd say, what of this is timeless enough that we would hear this on oldies radio mm-hmm. 40 years from now? Like, what is the Buddy Holly of 1995? What is the Elvis of 1995? Mm. What is all of that? And then you would think, like, is Eminem going to be spun in 50 years? And I always thought that what Eminem did that harmed him was it was all about references that no one would understand half a century from now. Yeah. That you'd have to turn around and explain to your kids, but then you'd have to explain why you're listening to such foul music right. to your kids. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think Eminem's going to endure. And, no. I don't, and I think that there's a lot of 
there's a lot of music that we listen to that's going to fall through the ether. And there are a lot of movies that we have seen that are going to fall through the ether. And I mean Academy Award winning films that you, like, tell me what the last five best pictures are. You can't do it. Almost nobody can do it. Yeah. But Back to the Future is one of those that slips through the eye of the needle. It's timeless. There are a very short list of films that I think stand next to that one over the past 30 years, that 30 years from now, even if they're not remade, they're going to get passed along because the parents have no problem showing that content to their children. Well, and it's funny because this movie sat on a shelf, not after it was produced, but the screenplay sat on a shelf for a long time because nobody wanted to touch it based on the idea of, of the, the, the son having to woo the mother. Right. And Disney, you know, was interested, but they said there's zero way we can do this until Robert Zemeckis made Romancing the Stone. And Romancing the Stone made Robert Zemeckis a viable director. Yep. My parents, my dad loved Romancing the Stone and loved Jewel of the Nile. Yes. Both, I mean, I remember he would watch it every time it came on. Back in the day, nobody bought $100 movies. No. And movies weren't available. That's so right. all of my video collection growing up would be NBC Movie of the Week edition of Police Academies. <laughs> yeah. And Back to the Future on TBS yep. and things of that nature. Jewel of the Nile and Romancing the Stone would be played on like ABC mm -hmm. on a weekend. And my dad would just go crazy and record this. how I had Indiana Jones. Yep. It's how I had all of this stuff because you didn't just go to Walmart and buy a $20 copy of a movie. Back in the day, a video was like 99 bucks. Yeah. And the only place you would see it is at a video store. That's right. And that's how the rental industry existed. Yeah. Romancing the Stone becomes a big deal, thus... Robert Zemeckis becomes a big deal, and Steven Spielberg wants to executive produce something of Robert Zemeckis. says, what do you got? And his, he and his buddy Bob Gale had this script, and the rest is history. The rest is indeed history. And it's amazing how few members of this cast have ever gone on to do very much else. I mean, Crispin Glover had a couple of movies come out and never really took. Um, Thomas Wilson, who played Biff, that's all he's ever going to be known for. Yep. He's a stand-up comic now who, yeah. who, you know, sings songs about, you know, Back to the Future is just a movie. Stop asking me about it. You know? Yeah. Well, I want to have him on. So I'm going to ask him about it. Uh, Leah Thompson had a good career. She did. And, you know, she did Howard the Duck and she did some other stuff. And then she did Carolina in the City, which was a pretty successful show for NBC for a while. Christopher Lloyd really is one of the last things that was huge that he did. A lot of his career had already happened by this point. And I don't think he sought out too much after this either i think he made money and he just kind of went in the background and did not this was this was michael j fox's it was. vehicle yeah and and christopher lloyd kind of continued to work for bob zemeckis uh, who framed yes. roger rabbit and yes. those were kind of the the high points of of his acting career at that point i think he just like really enjoyed working with bob yeah, and then look, we see that. We see DiCaprio with Scorsese, for example, and I guess now with Tarantino, now that he's done Django and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and, yep. and things of that sort, we see that. And Christopher Nolan would use uh, Cillian Murphy in mm -hmm. a lot of his Everything. films, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, for yep. example. And So, I mean, that's, that's not abnormal. Bob Gale didn't do very much of anything after this point. Zemeckis has had a really stellar career. Yeah, but... It's, it's been up and down, but, I mean, he would go on to do... He was part of Castaway, yep. and he did Forrest Gump. He did Polar Express. Did the Polar Express, and then he he's done some things that failed. But he has he's had some other projects sure. that would resonate still. But this is Marty's. This is Marty McFly's story, and it ends up being Marty and Doc Brown that 
you remember. Everything else, you could have put other people in, and it might have still worked in a lot of ways. But I do think that George McFly was perfectly cast because Crispin Glover is so weird. And you had to be this really awkward character to play George McFly. He hit the mark. He did. This whole movie hit the mark. Hit the mark so much so that even though we were just going to talk about Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3 in one podcast, uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm not surprised because I could talk about this forever. But we'll talk about 2 and 3 in the next episode of the Pop 6. We'll be able to get through those. And maybe we'll even be able to touch on the animated show for a minute. And the ride. And the ride, which was very cool. and it doesn't exist anymore. Even the Telltale game that they put out that was entertaining. Unfortunately, the Back to the Future Nintendo game, not quite the same. Back, yeah. That one Remember like Friday the 13th? Yeah, and, side-scrolling. Yeah. Not great. Yeah, it was, it was difficult to pull off. Yeah. Still is. Anything that you can think of offhand that you feel like was inspired when you're like, oh, that reminds me of Back to the Future at all. I mean, I'm sure people would say, oh, I was inspired to do movies because I saw Back to the Future. I can definitely say that. No question about it because it's so beloved. And I mean, we didn't talk about the money that it made, but it made a truckload of money. Um, and the series as of 2011 was the 13th um, highest grossing trilogy of all time globally. Mm. And much much of that due to the first film doing over four hundred million dollars. Yeah, I mean, I think it inspired me in a lot of ways. None of which I think probably translate into my everyday life. But again, I want to go back to something we said early on in the podcast. As I've watched this movie, as I've aged, this movie has impacted me in different ways right you know and and you and you see things and you and you laugh at jokes that missed the mark earlier uh you know you're touched emotionally and you know thinking about you know people you've lost along the way and all those kinds of things um I, and then and, and that's rare for a comedy to do oh yeah and i also think that after after the film the first thing that abby said to me was i wish we could have known our parents right and seen them like you know, we're we're dealing with with loss in our extended family, and we're dealing with parents that are getting older. Mm-hmm. And you know, you've of course experienced that on an even greater level. And you know, I've had somebody ask me recently, "Do you worry about your parents?" And I said, "Well, of course. Sure. I mean, I, I do because I see the mortality mm-hmm. in immortals from my childhood that right. I never thought I would see in this form. The people always talk about my handwriting, and I do happen to have really good handwriting. And the reason I have good handwriting is because my dad had immaculate handwriting." And so he would drill me on it, and he had some of the most beautiful cursive you've ever seen. And so at my wedding, my guest book, which my wife came up with and did not tell me about, she had someone on Etsy design custom for us, was the DeLorean from Back to the Future with Just Married on it and all this, and everybody signed around it. I'm sure you probably appreciated that. I was really impressed. Yeah, it was awesome, and it still is. And so everybody signed it, and I saw my dad's signature, Mm -hmm. and it was almost illegible. And it was in that moment where I was just like, he's getting old. Yeah. He, I, and I've seen him hold forks, and it's hard for him to hold forks. And it's just, you never thought that that would happen. And as we get, now that we're old enough to appreciate what our parents were and what they meant and how hard they worked and how hard they sacrificed and all the things that, that helped us become who we are, I would love to have seen my dad when he was playing football at Martinsville High School. Yeah. I would love to have seen my mom when she was Brenda Sue Joyce 
at Drury Mason High School in Martinsville, Virginia. I'd love to have seen how they met, like how it happened and all of those things. And so in this film, you get what it could have looked like for these people that you idolize and care about so much. Yeah, it's funny because Back to the Future sparked a handful of conversations when I was younger with my parents from the standpoint of how did you meet? Yeah. And, you know, in 2019, my mother has passed, and so I can't really get two sides of those stories anymore. But, you know, that movie back, you know, a much younger version of me, prompted a conversation that let me in on some things that I didn't realize. Because my dad, when he was 15 years old, got in a really bad car accident. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to be in the class of 1970, but he missed most of that class year because of the accident, ended up finishing high school with the class of 1971, which is where my mother was. And they met each other. They knew of each other, but they met each other, uh, you know, in high school as basically they rounded a corner and ran into each other. And my dad, who I think his arm was still in a cast and was carrying books, dropped all his books and she helped him pick them up. And it just wow. kind of sparked a conversation. And it made me look at their relationship through the lens of this film and george drops his books and say what if yeah you know what if you don't round the corner at the same time am i am i here right you know? so it, it and you talk about it, you know how are people inspired by it I, I think that i kind of you know experienced that very early on just because it opened up conversations that you know you you do kind of want to figure out what what your your folks were like yeah, and, and that inspired the entire premise of this film for Bob Gale. It did, and I think that it's one of the reasons why it resonates so much is once you get old enough to appreciate all the nuance of the film, all the depth of the film, the jokes are landing, but the heart of the film is fully ingrained in you. Then you realize what adult vibrancy is supposed to look like, mm. like how you're supposed, like how you ideally would want to be, and then you're just like, how were my parents? Right. Because as a kid, all I saw was superheroes. Mm-hmm. All I saw was these people that, you know, protected me and made sure I had all of these things. And then I would just, I would have loved to have seen the nuance in who they were. And I'll never get that opportunity because this is a movie. Right. And it's a movie that in North America, on a budget of $19 million, <laughs> made $210 million, 178 in other territories across the world for 389 worldwide. It's a movie that sequel over four years later on November 22nd, 1989. Interesting, they didn't do the Kennedy assassination because they could have, because that's the day in 1963 where he was actually assassinated. Made 118 mil in North America, 213 in other territories for 331 million. And then in 1990, less than a year later, Back to the Future 3 came out in May, made 87 in North America, 156. Uh, elsewhere for 244 total. So you're talking about almost a billion dollars created by this franchise that was done in 1985 and 1990. And even Back to the Future Day made another 4.8 million back in 2015. Yeah, you adjust that for inflation. It's it's right amongst some of the greats. Just um, outstanding. Yeah, absolutely outstanding. So we will. I guess I need to watch two and three. I don't know that she's actually even seen. Two and three. Yeah, that's disappointing. But you can do something about that. I can. And so this gives you guys an opportunity. We figure you saw the first one. We would not be surprised if you've only seen the second and third one once. Or maybe twice. And maybe it's been several years. So if there's homework to give you this week, it's to watch those two films. 
and send us stuff. Send me stuff at jmartzone or send us stuff at 1045thezone on Twitter and just let us know where you'd like to approach it or what stood out to you about the sequels to this film and the universe. The Back in Time documentary that you can find on iTunes, which is very, very good, or the animated series or whatever it is that moves you about this trilogy and this story from one to wherever it is. Send us that stuff, and we'll we'll try to include it, quite frankly, because I can't talk about Back to the Future enough, quite frankly. Yeah, this is going to be fun. It is definitely going to be fun. Real quick on the way out, not Back to the Future related, but Rise of the Skywalker, or, or the final Star Wars trailer hit last night during a horrendous football game. Yeah, it was the only bright spot of that game. And look, you don't have to do much with a trailer. I was thinking about this, and people always say, awesome trailer, and I thought, well, when's the last one you didn't think was going to be excellent? How many bad Star Wars trailers have you ever seen? Not many. Right. Maybe this one was really good. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it could still be a terrible movie, I guess. But I'm excited to see it. As am I. And the C-3PO thing at the end, I'm not made of stone. Get to get so that one, almost, that one almost got me, get especially after I'd just seen Carrie Fisher like eight yeah. seconds before. That's right. There's, there's a... We will have a lot of Star Wars before the end of the year. Yes. But we've got Back to the Future 2 and 3 coming up on the next edition of the Pop 6. Also, the famed and many times teased office finale that we still have not done. Rumor has it we're doing that on Friday. Rumor has it. <laughs> Hopefully, that will get done. But until then, for Brad, I'm Jason. Uh, how do you finish a Back to the Future podcast? What do you say at that point in time? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Yes. Great, Scott. We'll see you next week.